Okay, so I'm talking today to Rebecca Tweed, who's a seasoned campaign manager for both candidate campaigns and ballot measures. Thanks for talking to me today, Rebecca. Yeah, hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm really grateful that you're sharing your experience with my students today. So I'm going to just jump right in and say, um, first of all, uh, I want to talk about both ballot measure and candidate campaigns. Um, but you're currently working on a ballot measure, politics, no, excuse me, people, not politicians. Uh, I got that one wrong when I when I talked to Tara on the phone yesterday. People, not politicians, that's a ballot measure. And, and we will talk about that. But I want to start off by talking about candidate elections first, if that's OK with you. Sure. So what would you say are the two or three biggest challenges of being a campaign manager for a candidate for political office? Sure. Well, I think uh, well, I appreciate that we're going to talk through these today because there's some some similarities between candidate campaigns and ballot measure campaigns. And then there's very distinct differences. The biggest one being that both in how you run a candidate campaign, but also how to manage a candidate campaign is they're much more personal. Right. So the most kind of the biggest thing about a candidate campaign is your actual job more than anything else is to manage the candidate themselves. And that can be very uh, time consuming. Right. Because the candidate has incoming all the time. They've got people reaching out to them. Uh, obviously, their face and their name and their positions are front and center. And you're really helping manage the candidate, you know, their day, their temperament, whether they've eaten or not. Uh, if they have everything that they are uh, needing to be prepared for and prepared with. Um, and so that brings brings challenges too. you kind of become the sole person that that person's, you know, that candidate is relying on. Um, so that's the that's probably the most standout piece of a candidate campaign and is, uh, is really that one on one type of relationship you build with a single person uh, that's front and center of their own campaign. And how do candidates take that? Do they take well to that kind of relationship or is it uh, is there kind of a is there a bristling or both? A majority of the time uh, they take very well to it. You know, they recognize that they are a specialist in a certain field and, and this manager has been hired for a reason and is a specialist and has something to do. It is really important early on to set that relationship with one another and learn working styles, even down to whether candidates like exclamation points or not in communications, right? And and being able to manage something as simple like that, um, obviously all the way up to this is what you're allowed to do today, which really intense campaigns get that way. But I would say 98% of the time, uh, the candidates respond very well to that kind of relationship. And how do you handle it if they don't? Like what, you know, you say, say you have a bristly interaction and there's some bad feeling and some resistance, uh, what do you do to manage that moment or that that period? Hopefully it's just a moment. Yeah, usually it's just a moment. Um, I think I think most of the time if it's an ongoing issue, you know, campaigns will just separate. They'll just kind of go separate ways. And, and I think that's okay. People are going to have different styles. Um, if I've been in that experience before, I usually pull in another another trusted person, you know, to kind of help support the situation, you know, either to explain to the manager, whether that's me or somebody else on the campaign, you know, why the candidate needs to be, uh, you know, his needs or her needs need to be addressed a certain way. Or you pull somebody else in that says, hey, candidate A, <laughs> this is what we agreed on and this is how we're how we're going forward. Um, but most of those conflicts work themselves out or they're at a, a unique peak in a campaign where tensions are high anyway. Um, and, you know, you just kind of work through it like any other relationship. I would say, and I would add to this, that at least when I'm running the candidate campaign, you know, the first call is with the candidate and immediately after the second call is with that candidate's partner if they have one. Uh, to kind of explain the relationship that you're going to have with the candidate and, and kind of outline what to expect in the campaign. Because the partner, the spouse, or, you know, whatever that relationship is, tends to take things differently in a campaign and has a different relationship with the candidate. Uh, and so building that trust is almost equally as important as building the trust with that candidate themselves. Right. So what are some of the challenges in addressing the family of a candidate uh, as opposed to just, you know, the can candidate management I can see is definitely a challenge. What about candidate family management? What are the unique challenges there? Sure. So the candidate's family is always going to respond to anything negatively more intensely, 
right? Because somebody is attacking the loved one. Um, and so you have to kind of share with a candidate's partner and family, hey, at some point there will be a negative letter to the editor, or at some point somebody is going to say something that's not factual. You have to understand there's a strategy around it, understand it's not personal. And 9.9 out of 10 times, the family will say, no, we get it. We totally get it. And then the first time that something like that happens, there's a barrage of phone calls and concerns about how we're going to address it. <laughs> and it makes sense, right? It's, you know, if you're being criticized as a uh, professor, you know, not that that would ever happen. It's a lot easier for oh, you to happens. sit down and yeah, <laughs> it's easier for you to sit down in your annual review and, and hear feedback. Um, if somebody were to talk to your wife about things you should improve on, she's going to have a very different feel about it, right? He's, he's, be he's the best. He's great. Don't tell him he needs to do anything different, right? It's just a natural human interaction. And that's the key thing, whether it's a candidate themselves or their spouse, that's very, very, very different in a candidate campaign than a ballot measure campaign is the human interaction day in and day out, whether you're talking to voters or you're talking to the press or your campaign staff and team or just how voters are going to respond to the candidate. Everything is a very personal, very individualized uh, sensation that people have. They take their vote very personally and you actually have a human in a real life that's being impacted by how the campaign is being run. So uh, I, I can definitely see that the candidate and candidate family management is a challenge and sort of the emotional side and uh, that that is an ongoing uh, concern because this is these are human beings. What are some of the other big challenges of being a campaign manager for a candidate campaign? Sure. Well, there's a lot more that you will address in a candidate campaign. So on any given day, you could get 100 emails from voters. And some of them are, you know, maybe key influencers or party leaders or the media. Uh, some are just constituents. Um, but all of them could have a very different question about you. Where do you stand on a certain issue? How would you respond to this if it happened? Uh, so the, the flow of information and positions that a candidate needs to be prepared for uh, and have a position on and be ready to message uh, is much, much larger and much broader, right? In a ballot measure, you've got, you know, one issue and a couple key talking points. A candidate, you know, a candidate slate could have 20 different things and you want them to run for three or four things, but uh, they're going to need to have answers on everything. And so when you're managing that and you're managing a team and you need to kind of have a position on, on multiple things that come your way, uh, the flow of information is much I would say it's much more challenging than a ballot measure. Um, even if you have all the right answers, you're just constantly kind of pivoting between what other people are focused on, um, and you have to be responsive to that. In a ballot measure, uh, or even a coalition issue or a lobby issue, you know, you're pretty much all agreed on what the issue is. You're just talking about it different ways. Candidates are not that way. Right. So it, candidate campaigns. And I can see that. Right. You know, a ballot measure is one issue and it's also it's a single issue. Uh, it has to be, you know, by law, it can't be very complex. So in a candidate campaign, there's, you know, any number of issues. It sounds like I mean, you said 100 emails and I imagine that phone calls and personal meetings, there's all kinds of stuff. How do you balance the competing demands for your time uh, and the candidates time when obviously there's going to be a lot of I imagine there's more than 24 hours worth of demand and yet there's only sure. a 24 hour day. So how do you, how do you balance that? So anything that needs to rise. So as the campaign manager and even the campaign team, if you're resourced enough to have folks that, that sit in different parts of the campaign, uh, it's our job to be the filter so that the candidate is only focused on, you know, really what they need to be doing that day. And so when I look at, and this is a relatively crude way to say it, but, if I'm looking at something that needs my candidates, uh, you know, attention, it needs to be one of two things. It either needs to be a funder, right, a potential donor or a current donor uh, that needs to be in touch with them for some reason that only the candidate can talk to them about, or they would need to be a voter, right? So somebody that specifically is a constituent or a, a would-be constituent, and it's an issue where they need to personally hear from the candidate um, and not from us. Right. 
most of the time, a majority of that information is shared with the candidate. You know, you do like an end of day briefing and it's, you know, hey, we got 25 questions about climate change today and we set up an appointment for you to talk to these people and, you know, all of that. And then you get to that briefing and you say, but so and so, you know, who is looking for the best way to contribute to your campaign and wants to host an event for you would really like to talk to you personally. Um, it takes some time and you have to set those kind of agreements with your candidate also and your candidate's team. Um, but it's just, it's a lot of work to kind of to filter and to balance it. And you learn over time what really needs to go to a candidate and what doesn't. And what uh, you- a, a tangible example would be, um, you know, candidate campaigns have a info at email, right? The candidates don't have access to that email. And they don't have access to voicemails that come to the campaigns. The campaign staff does, and then they either would bring it to the manager's attention, and then I make a decision on whether it, it needs to go to the, the candidate's level, right? Otherwise, they could get stuck, you know, in emails and voicemails all day long. So time management, you know, is extremely important. And if you're managing a candidate's campaign, you're managing their time literally down to at 11:45 you have 7 minutes to eat half this sandwich and then you've got a radio interview at 12 and you know and then at 12:05 you get a bathroom break and then we got to get in the car so <laughs> if they're checking emails that can't happen uh, yeah and so you know i can see what you said earlier about how like you have to plan the candidates day like one day at a time and keep them focused on the day um, you have to do that, but then your time horizon can't be one day at a time. In order to keep the candidate focused on the one day at a time thing, you have to be focused uh, in the both the near term and the medium term and the long term. How do you balance that? I, under, I understand like just you have staff who takes all the info at emails and the voicemails, mm-hmm. and they filter it for you so that only the most important things get to you. But how do, how do you balance... You're the various time horizons that a campaign manager has to uh, live inside. The candidate lives day to day. You live day to day, week to week, month to month. Sure. So that's a great question, and I hope that I have solved it uh, or answered it. You know, but you learn a little more every campaign cycle, and certainly in this one with the coronavirus measures, that's changed timetables. We all thought we'd figured out. Uh, but I start with backwards planning. So looking out you know, all the way to the election date. And even when we don't have certain things that are on the calendar, and I'll, I'll use an example in a second, you know, putting into a, a calendar, this is about the time these things will happen. And so if that's going to happen, then we need to work back here. So you can kind of take your 30,000 foot level and backwards plan to all of the steps that would go to something like that. And an example would be an editorial board interview. So most editorial board interviews with the newspaper will happen three to four weeks before the uh, election, but they will contact you about 10 days before to say, hey, on April 28th, we want to interview you. (laughs) Well, if you're only preparing for it the day you get that inquiry, you're going to be behind. So knowing what some of those places are and working with your staff to know that, you know, then that helps you come, you know, build day to day backwards. Um, and, you know, I actually keep two calendars. I keep that long running one that's that's color coded and, you know, kind of like a Gantt chart of when certain things need to happen and, and be expected to happen. Uh, and then I obviously have a daily calendar of, OK, you have this deadline at noon for your candidate. So make sure at eight o'clock, you know, you've checked all the software and you've done all of that. I know it's a little in the weeds, but that's really how how detailed you know, calendaring has to be to be able to figure out everything you need to to be doing. Keeping in mind that the last six weeks of a campaign, you know, you're you're being prepared to pivot on an hourly basis, right? If a candidate or their opponent something happens and you've got to change direction all of a sudden, you're going to have to be open and ready to go with that flow. Um, right. That's part of it, part you know, of your long term planning is that you know that you can't plan for those last six weeks down to uh, how things are going to go. You can plan for it, but you have to be ready to to change at a moment's notice. Right. And, (laughs) and over time, over experience, you can even start to see when those things might happen. So for example, I don't know what day my opponent might have a piece of direct mail landing, but I know that it's about this time period. So you tell your candidate and your family and your staff and other partners in the district, Hey, right about now you're going to start seeing newspaper ads or direct mail. I need you guys to send me a copy of it as soon as you get one. 
right? And then your quick pivot is just based on what the message is, if you feel like responding at all. Um, but just having an understanding of what that campaign flow is. And I will usually sit down, well, always sit down with my candidates and then staff, if I have them, to lay out that long-term plan so that they understand, you know, hey, in February, when I start talking about editorial board interviews, I know it's not until April, but this is why. We need to have three practices. We need to be, you know, prepared for this part. We need to, you know, et cetera. Right. So there are certain things that you definitely know specifically there are there are dates for. And then other things you have a rough idea like this is when in the last six weeks things happen typically. Um, now, you mentioned two calendars and color coded. And uh, that's that's how you do it. Do, do you, you must know other people who run campaigns. Is that do you have to have that kind of organizational skill or are there people who are who wing it <laughs> or who don't use <laughs> who don't use color coded and, and do, can they succeed? Like, you know, for people out there who say, God, I could never have a color coded spreadsheet type calendar. Can I ever be a campaign manager? Uh, is the answer? No, you can't. You definitely don't need to have it color coded, but I would say that organizational management and time management are probably the two things I look for most when I'm looking to hire a campaign manager or staff, because however you decide you want to do it, you have to be able to have that kind of attention to detail. Now, there are some folks involved in campaigns that, you know, people use the 30,000 foot level. There's also the 50,000 foot level that just tells people, you know, go take care of these and get these things done. And that opens their space to be, you know, much more focused on strategic messaging or something like that. So it, it adapts a little bit, but, um, that, you know, being organized and being able to manage your own time and other people's time, that's the real job. Right. Uh, and when I hire people and, or interview people or recommend them for campaign jobs, it's never about how many they've worked on or their degree or their GPA. The first things I look for are, organizational skills and time management skills and then work ethic because those two will get you much farther than a really long resume and all these internships and all sorts of things uh, to be able to manage campaigns at a certain level. Well, that's good. I was just about to ask you what other skills you look for in people that you hire and work ethic and can is does that translate in this context into work all the time uh, or do you look for people who have a strong work ethic, but also have some life work balance or is life work balance just out, out of the range of campaign work? <laughs> it, sometimes uh, it can be out of the range, you know, certainly getting into a, a certain time in a campaign. I think it varies on when people are jumping into a campaign field, right? When you're first starting out and you're, you know, an entry level, I just want to do everything I can in a campaign you're probably going to get projects that the manager or somebody that's a little bit higher tier couldn't get to during their day, which means you're going to have things to do in off hours, quote unquote, um, you know, spreadsheets and some of that type of work, which seems very, you know, boring and whatever tends to be that some of the most important parts of campaign work hence organization. Um, but it's hard for people to get to when they have a lot of other things going on. I would say that, you know, I don't want to scare anybody off, but if you are entering a campaign position or you're interested in it and you think it's a nine to five job, uh, you're you're wrong and you won't be able to do a campaign in that in that type of time frame. Um, sometimes it's, you know, if you can do it five to nine, you're lucky um, because that's just how the flow of the days sometimes go. But I over time, you know, at least personally, I like to help people work smarter uh, not necessarily harder and longer. So I'll, I'll use a quick example. Uh, I recently hired an employee into my firm two months ago, and she's super great. Needed her to work on a really important project today. And I said, you know, there's a couple ways you can do it. I'm not going to micromanage because the end of the day, I just want this to be the result. But here are some tips to make it go quicker, right? Start by putting all your spreadsheets together and then copy and paste into all of them instead of one spreadsheet at a time. Right. Because it doesn't do me any good if it takes her three hours, if I've learned in 15 years how to do it in one. So you, um, so you have some tips. So this seems like another campaign manager skill is the ability to train people on the fly how to work smarter. Is that another another essential skill along with organizational skill and work yeah. ethic? Yeah, I think that's one. 
Um, writing is always going to be a competitive skill, uh, and I believe that it's becoming more and more competitive. Um, if you can write well, you're probably going to be hired pretty quick, right? Somebody else can do some other elements. If you can write me a newsletter that I don't have to edit more than once, you're hired, <laughs> right? Because things are moving so quickly, we can't have mistakes in that, you know, that type of thing. So being able to write well uh, is also, you know, a very valuable skill set to have. And that applies to social media, you know, to press releases, to mail pieces. Uh, but folks that enjoy doing that, you know, that's a good skill set as well. So how do you evaluate people to tell whether they're going to be able to work well in a team? Because uh, these other skills, I think you could, you know, you could assess in a pretty quick interview, writing skills, work ethic, organizational skills. What about the ability to work in a team, which I know is essential. A campaign is a giant team. Uh, clearly, that is a key skill. What is your uh, what is your assessment tool for deciding whether somebody has that kind of interpersonal skills? So the first question I ask, and some of that you can just get over a cup of coffee. You know, you can just tell from people's demeanor. But one of the first questions I ask, instead of asking the question of, you know, what are your strengths and weaknesses? Um, because everybody gets that and those are important. I want to know somebody's weaknesses so that I can figure out who else on the team can fill that weakness up, right? I don't ever want to make people that have weaknesses feel like they need to make those better. Let's just all agree that we've got strengths and weaknesses and the team is supposed to pivot around that if it's a good, if it's a good team. So the question I typically ask people is who do you think, or what skill set do you think somebody needs to have on this team to account for some of the things that you don't prefer that you're not good at. So somebody might say, I'm actually really not organized, but I can write really, really quick. If you need me to organize all of it, I'm not your person. And I may have somebody on the team that's really organized, but is not a great writer. Um, but I actually try to ask them to identify how would you fulfill that spot in the campaign if we need X and that's your weakness, what's your idea? because it gets them thinking about the type of environment they want to be in as well, right? They don't want to be in an environment where they're constantly being asked to do something they either don't prefer, they're not good at, um, and opens that up. So well, I think most folks that want to work in campaigns are good in teams. I would say it's very rare that you find somebody who, you know, really doesn't actually even desire that. Most folks want to be part of something. Um, so that's one way. And then you, you know, you kind of work together. I mean, I've had very few times on campaigns where somebody really just didn't fit or they didn't like the setup. It was different than they thought. I mean, we're all thinking of college, right? We all have group work we like and don't like. Oh, the <laughs> um, students hate it when I give them group work. <laughs> yeah. I used to talk myself out of it too when I was in college. So, <laughs> well, I like the fact that you say, you know, you ask them what their weaknesses are and then also essentially let people not feel bad about their weaknesses because we all do have them. And instead of saying, well, you need to improve that because you need to be good at everything. Okay. If we know what your weaknesses are, then someone else is going to have a strength that's going to fill that. It seems like really good uh, management. I have a tough question for you. Um, <laughs> what is your biggest weakness as in campaign or are you not allowed to have any weaknesses? Is the, ma <laughs> is the manager, does the manager, the one person who can't have any weaknesses? No, we definitely can, uh, and we have to, right? I mean, you actually, to have a strong team, if everybody had all the same strengths and all the same weaknesses, you'd also fail. Um, so it has to work that way. I would say personally mine is I do, I try to move pretty quick, and I'm also really detail-oriented, which both of those can sound good, but when you have a multitude of, of projects, I still sometimes have to remember, oh, I do have people that can do this. I do need to delegate. I don't have to, you know, try to get into all of the details because I've already explained it well to somebody that I hired to do this job and I need to just do that. Um, and so, that's something that, you know, kind of applies to me everywhere. Um, so delegation is, your, delegation is your biggest weakness and you, you have to remind yourself all the time to do it. Is that that's am I am I hearing you correctly? Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> that's a good, that's actually, you know, it's kind of one of those things like, what's your biggest weakness? I'm a perfectionist. Like, you know, as a campaign manager, your biggest weakness is delegating, but that's, you have to, it's good that you know that, right? If you didn't know that, then you would probably get burned out really quickly. Yeah. And I have staff that remind me all the time, 
hey, we're here, we can help with it. And some of that is, um, you know, and of course I'm not defending that. I'm, I'm aware of it and I would love for it to not be a weakness. I'd love to delegate more. None of that's a reflection on the team. Some of it is because when I started working in campaigns in Oregon 15 years ago, it, it was me, right? And I do get hired onto things as an individual. And I build that personal relationship with people. And so I've, I've kind of been trained to be very independent. And, you know, this is my shop, right? You know, I've worked for my own company for a long time. Now that I'm expanding that, uh, and even when you get into a campaign team, sometimes, you know, the campaign's hiring the staff or, or you're building that, but you're still individually the one focused on a, on a job. Now that personally my company has expanded to having employees and staff and people that are specialized in other things, I sometimes just have to remember that, you know, once 8 a.m. starts and other people are starting to work, you can bring them into it and they don't have to work at three o'clock in the morning like I do, right? So, but that's a regular discipline thing too, right? And being disciplined is part of uh, a way you have to, you have to have that skill set to be successful in campaign management also. So um, I want to ask now about a specific part of campaign, uh, which is messaging. And how, how much are you involved as the manager in crafting the messaging? Or are you kind of just the traffic cop to make sure that all the people who are working on messaging are doing it all in the right direction? Sure. Uh, sometimes it depends on the size of the campaign, right? And campaign manager and campaign consultant can sometimes be interchangeable terms. Uh, right now, in all of the campaigns I'm working on, uh, that are candidate campaigns, I am responsible for all of the messaging and all of that strategy. Uh, there are other campaigns I've been involved in where the campaign is so large that you have multiple kind of strategists and consultants involved. And as the manager, you're just making sure everything in the campaign strategy is being executed, which involves keeping everybody on message, make sure keeping the staff, you know, on task on responding to things and being aware of what we're doing but not actually the one sitting down and writing mail pieces or advertising. Uh, this cycle, I'm responsible for, you know, all of the messaging for my clients. So, you know, and in general, I guess, you know, because you're asking me and I give you a personal answer. Most of the time, the campaign manager um, in Oregon campaigns is involved in, in both things, involved in the messaging and making sure the campaign's, you know, firing on all cylinders from an operational standpoint. That's right. And you, so you were Newt Bueller's campaign manager when he ran for governor, which is about as big of a campaign as it gets in the state. And now you're also working on uh, judicial, small judicial races. You've worked on state legislative races, races which are actually relatively small. Um, mm -hmm. At what, which of those levels do you and do you not do uh, kind of more hands-on messaging, like writing a direct piece of direct mail? Sure. So I would say everything under the gubernatorial campaign. So, so that so was the level at which you didn't you 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 had the other strategists and you just saw the stuff coming through, right? Or you work with them on it, you know, yeah. and and certainly that depends on who the campaign manager is, you know. But it's always it's always a team effort. Um, but in that situation, you know, we had some really skilled uh, folks involved that were handling messaging and and kind of driving that, and I was part of that. Um, right now, I have. Senate candidate, a House candidate, uh, a county commissioner, a district attorney, and two judicial races, all of which, you know, I'm messaging and making sure the campaigns function. Um, and again, you know, it really depends. But that, for personally, that was kind of the, where the line was of, you know, doing all of the messaging for my current types of candidates versus something like Newt, where it was a team effort. But my real focus was making sure that everything was was being executed and uh, and that our, our strategists and team had what they needed to be able to drive messaging. So polling or anecdotal things or information about different parts of the state. And, you know, every team is a little different. But so for in terms of scale uh, comparison, roughly on uh, the gubernatorial campaign that you ran, um, how many people were you in contact with in managing versus, uh, say, the state Senate campaign you're doing now? What is, what's, the, what's the size, not of the overall campaign itself, but of the people that you actually have kind of contact with and can delegate to and are, you know, have to manage? Sure. So the gubernatorial race um, was probably up to about 20 
that were managed. And then we had a, a team that was, you know, our strategist that was made up of about six or seven different people. Um, as opposed to a race now where, you know, there's, there's two or three staff people, it depends on if they're incumbent. Um, but it's, it gets much smaller to about two or three on some of these campaigns, uh, that are a little more local and that's pretty normal. Um, if any of these races were to become very competitive in the general, right. Cause we're in the primary, uh, that staff would grow to quite a bit. But in a legislative race uh, or any of the other ones I've mentioned a little bit down ballot, you know, a large portion of your team are volunteers. And that's really what you want to build. Um, you know, so you have lawn sign folks that are volunteers that are getting everything done. The bigger and more competitive the campaign, the more those positions that are sort of volunteer captains need to become paid staff members. Um, and so what's the difference between managing volunteers and managing paid staff members? Or is there no difference? I treat everybody equally, but the accountability levels are different, right? Uh, paid staff, of course, are, are exactly that, right? They are, they're paid, they reflect the campaign, they have certain expectations. Volunteers, you know, they're giving up their time and they're investing because they care. And obviously your staff do too, but, um, you know, you can't really get upset with volunteers if something comes up or they, they don't show up for something. And that's normal, right? You have 20 people that say they're going to come help put out signs and, or knock doors and eight people or 10 people show up. If they're volunteers, that's, you go about your day. If one of those people that didn't show up was a staff person, they need to have a pretty good reason they didn't make it. <laughs> so you're right? allowed, you're allowed to yell at paid staff people, but not at volunteers and not Correct. that you, not that you would ever yell at anybody. Uh, of course not. <laughs> but but uh, candidly, do you, uh, you know, do your emotions get the better of you uh, at points in the campaign? I imagine, especially in the last six weeks, you it's a very emotional thing. Do, do your emotions get the better of you? I am sure that they do and that they have. Um, I try to work on that, you know, just as much as everybody can with the, the time life balance. I also, you know, have trusted people that will say, okay. You know, you got snapped out by somebody at Safeway the other day and you burst into tears. You need to put the computer away and take a break for a couple hours. Right. Um, so you have people but, who, like who you've actually sort of deputized and said, hey, if you see me doing this, like, put, you know, let me know. Right. And one of those is, you know, hey, I've noticed you're making more grammatical mistakes, which means you need to take a break and you're tired because my job is to never make those. Right. So. Um, you know, you have to have people around you that, that care about you for it, but certainly, uh, you know, emotions get really high, even for staff, things become personal. One thing that I would say is, uh, a challenge or something to be thoughtful of when you're in the management role is you really can't let people see that, right? I mean, if your candidate calls, everything's fine and you're on point and it's going to be a good day and you will tackle whatever mistake they may be made and you always cover for your staff or at least I do right um your staff comes to you for stability because most of the time they've not been through a campaign cycle before and so they're experiencing new levels of stress and things that have changed in their life at some point that that circle of stability, like you have to take care of yourself too, because that's just impossible to hold on to, right? It'll break at some point if you're not taking care of getting enough sleep or eating right or figuring out what your stress outlet is, because you do become, you know, we always use the word picture that, you know, a campaign is like a wheel and the campaign manager, not the candidate, is the center of that wheel. And you can't put so much pressure on that, that it's not going to burst at some point if you're not taking care of yourself. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. So self-care, it sounds very important. And, you know, of course, to balance that into then being extremely busy and having all this responsibility on your shoulders, what are some of your particular self-care practices, if you wouldn't mind sharing, uh, just so we can get an example? And maybe you could also, you know, other people who run campaigns give examples of other self-care practices that other people use that work for them and don't necessarily help you? Sure. So for me personally, mine is to have some sort of physical outlet, like physical exercise or meditation or yoga, something where I'm just kind of focused and I don't need to be in a, I'm not trying to control anything, right? Because you're spending your whole entire day controlling everything and you need to find time to just let go. So that's my best time to think and to release emotions and energy. And, and so for me, it's really having some sort of 
workout outlet. Um, I Kick, also reserve perhaps Kick... <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> have you, have you ever done kickboxing? I have. It's been a number of years. Most of my stuff now is is yoga and running and calmer activities. But Not quite so I, violent. Yeah, but sometimes <laughs> those come up. Um, you know, and during Measure 97, when I ran the No on Measure 97 campaign, you know, that was obviously the biggest campaign in Oregon's history at the time, both financially, but as far as the coalition and the staff and just the whole thing was huge. Uh, and we were spending a lot of time in the office and tensions were high for a long period of time. We actually had a, a wellness room in our office that I had put together that had a, you know, a succulent and a workout ball and a yoga mat. And it was like, even if you guys just want to go sit in there and drink your coffee or you don't have to work out, but like, we have to have a space you can disappear into for 15 minutes when you just got off a bad phone call or, you know, something, Right. Um, is that a relatively new thing on campaigns? You've been doing this for quite a while. Uh, is is that is that a, it? Sounds very new to me, but I don't know. Yeah, I think it's a reflection of mentality about work shifting recently in the last few years. I mean, we used to kind of have this, and I personally used to have it too. And and if there's time, I'll explain how it's changed. But it used to be that if you're not working twenty hours a day and you're not always available and you're not you know, sweating by the time you're done with your work day, you're not doing it hard enough. You're not going to get ahead. You're not pushing forward. Right. So this just, nobody is breakable and you've got to just work yourself to the bone. And some campaign volunteers will tell you that that's still the case for them, right? They're making phone calls eight hours a day and putting up lawn signs at two in the morning. Like it is hard work, but I think the mentality is shifting a lot more towards, or at least for me and my team, you know, and my campaign staff, if we're not 100%, our product isn't going to be 100%. And I like to function at 100%. So if you guys aren't taking a break to eat dinner with your kids and eat ice cream tonight if you want to or tell me no to something and you're just trying to get to 100%, you're depleting yourself all along and the work product's going to suffer. So set some boundaries and recognize when those things come about. And that's probably been my biggest growth in the last few years is realizing I actually get better at my job and I actually produce more value and respect when I do set those boundaries. You know, when I say I am not available during football on Sundays, you know, it doesn't mean I'm not actually checking in and doing things, but it's on my terms because I have to be able to make that the case and then candidates and vendors and staff feel like okay now we know when we get her the other six days of the week she's focused on what we're doing um right but finding you know finding those types of balances and those those pieces and i really i want people to love working on campaigns because everybody's going to hate it at some point you know i quit every election the day after i'm like i'm never doing this again right and i'm into 66 campaigns that's pretty (laughs) that's pretty common in this world isn't it that you quit every time and come back yeah i've heard that from just about everybody who's worked in campaign Um, yeah you quit and then you circle back in and and i want people that work on campaigns to want to be there because we're all better when that happens and because it is different work and it is difficult it's not a nine to five you don't get lunch breaks like you know, I have pretty high expectations for people on my team, but on the flip side of that, it has to be, how can I get you to a hundred percent today? Because the candidate needs a hundred percent from me, which means I need a hundred percent to give him, which means I need a hundred percent from you to help, which means you need, you know, it, it, there's a trickle down effect. Um, and I don't want folks on campaigns or that work in my company or, or candidates even to ever not feel like they can't go fill themselves back up before they come to the table. Right. And so just like I have people that tell me like, Hey, you need to step away and take a break. And most people that have been around me a long period of time, know when those types of triggers will start happening in the calendar also, um, you know, we have to be able to do that for our team and say, Hey, I think you should just take the day right, right? or go to bed early or, you know, whatever. Um, right. Emotional and, you know, and mental perfect, well-being. But yeah. Yeah. 
And there's going to be, you know, it all sounds really great to say right now and, and we'll conclude the interview and I'll have, you know, a thousand things that probably catch on fire today and <laughs> I'll have to listen to what I said myself. Um, oh, sure. It's 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 an intention. It's, you know, you, and you're going to fall short of it sometimes. But just I, I can see that that's a cultural shift, even setting the intention for this organization that the mental, uh, emotional and physical well-being of everybody from the candidate all the way down are important things to be paid attention to that's a that is a change i think that's a cultural change for sure and it's interesting to see that that's kind of reflected i think you're on the cutting edge of this but it is our entire culture does seem to be moving in the direction that these forms of well-being are seen as not only just good for our humanity but that they're part of our productivity that you can't mm-hmm. do your best unless you actually are well rested yeah it, and that actually goes back to our first your first question about running candidate campaigns um you know, I've started a process of obviously you interview a candidate to see if if you agree with them and if you have the same work style and work ethic and you do all of that, you know, very tangible stuff. But I've also started asking my candidates things like, what's your favorite food? And are you religious? Is that something we set time aside for? And how do you relax? Like when you tell me you're going for a walk, is that like you're you're telling me you need to take an hour break and that's what you do when you need a break? Like how tell me how to like take care of you as a person. Do you drink? Do you not drink? Because if you don't, I don't want to set up cocktail hours with you and potential funders, right? Do you drink coffee? You know, and, and learning those things about people, which you eventually learn throughout. But I think it's really important to kind of understand that early on, right? And it becomes a relationship builder, which makes it a lot easier to have that relationship with your candidates, right? Like one of my candidates now has a sweet tooth and I know when he's stressed, he overeats candy, right? But I send him candy every month just to be (laughs) like, hey, hang in there. Like here's your, you know, just as a joke. But so it's important to understand what your candidate and your staff need um, so that you can help them be better also. Because eventually that exhaustion coupled with the emotional ties, coupled with the real intensity that these are real people's lives, right? People are quitting jobs to run for office or not at home all the time to run for office. If you don't try to take care of each other, it breeds resentment, which is not a place you ever want to be in a campaign or any relationship, certainly. But campaigns, that can be very difficult because people can stop playing on the same playbook, right? Just because they're tired of each other. Um Absolutely. I've seen that happen, and that's very hard. So it's a big part of, I hope, what campaigns and, and that shift are working towards. So you've learned through your experience to actually ask these questions up front so that you're prepared well in advance. And when you started, you you kind of had to learn a candidate's preferences and likes and dislikes on the fly. Sure, if ever, really. <laughs> right, so now you you now actually just have like a set of, okay, here's what, I, here's what I need to know about you personally. I mean, it's interesting you say, you know, are you religious? Do you go to church? Do we need to set aside time for that? That seems, when you say it, it seems really obvious, but I could see how it wouldn't necessarily be the kind of thing you would think about when you first are interviewing and beginning to work with a candidate. Sure. And it's also, I let all of the staff know too. So anytime I hire on a campaign staff or somebody on my team, it's like, hey, here's some things to know about candidate X that I thought you might find interesting. Because hopefully, you know, even though it wouldn't be a regular interaction, like it's my job to talk to the candidates five times a day, at some point they're going to cross paths and need to know things about each other. And you want your candidate to trust the entire team. It's way too much pressure if they're just trusting you. It's too much pressure on the candidate and the campaign manager, right? Uh, You eventually break from just that singular form of relationship and so you know the whole team kind of needs to understand who they're supporting and and who they can work with when i'm looking at taking on a new client um i will talk with my employees and say you know i want i agree with them but i want to make sure you're all comfortable because you're going to be working 60 hours a week for the next six months to get this person elected even if you're only writing mail pieces or even if you're just designing social media posts like you need to be all in too uh, so that's really important. I think everybody has that. I, you know, I think every campaign team, um, you know, would have that type of mentality, but I just think that's really important because you are giving everything you possibly can, uh, to the campaign, regardless of what position you're in. Even if you're a volunteer, those two hours that you're knocking doors, that may be the only two hours that person had that week to give. Right. So we take volunteers and endorsers, 
you know, they they're high on the pedestal in campaigns because we often don't know what else is going on in their life. Um, I've said this before that, you know, we'll get campaign donations for $10 from a little old lady on the coast who hand wrote a check and hand wrote a note means a lot more to me than the thousand dollars that just came in online. Um, because somebody took the time and they, they only had $10 that week and they decided to send it in. Those types of people raise to the candidates level. Going back to that question, that's when I would say, candidate, you need to call Betsy from Bandon, Oregon. She just sent you $10. Right. That's great. So um, that is now, I think, a good place to pivot to the final thing I want to do. And you've definitely implied a lot uh, of differences between candidate campaigns and ballot measures. But are the things you haven't said yet that you would say uh, that you think are important contrasts between these two types of campaigns? Sure. I'd say there are a few big ones. Um you know, ballot measures are issue measures, which by nature makes them logical. Um, they're nonpartisan, even though you could say one has one lane or another lane, right? A tax increase versus a tax cut or a social issue. But in a ballot measure, one, you're, you have a piece of paper instead of a person. That's dramatically different for the manager because you're not getting 2 a.m. phone calls about lawn signs. From <laughs> and a, a ballot person. measure can't get hungry or cranky or call you at 2 in the morning. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, and they don't have spouses. Uh, so, you know, one issue is that candidates, people vote very personally. They are people. It's a personal type of campaign. Ballot measures are much more about logic. You are trying to make a better argument than your potential opponents are. And the opponents aren't people. It's opponents to the ballot measure itself. So I never refer to like an, a ballot measure campaign um, you know, you're not referencing the organizations necessarily as much as you're just saying, hey, somebody's on the yes side and somebody's on the no side. Candidate campaigns, it's one person versus another person. Um, so it's a lot like debate in, in college or in high school. You know, you've got an issue in the middle of the table and you've got people making arguments for or against it. Strategically, the messaging around that then also becomes much more important and much sharper. So... Um, you're not, if you're running a ballot measure campaign, you're not going to get questions about where you stand on things or where the campaign stands on things. People want to know why they should support it or oppose it. Um, so you typically have two to three messages and that's all you talk about the whole entire time. So even if you get a hundred emails in your response is one of those three types of messages. Yeah. Right. Does that make sense? It does. And, you know, I, I interviewed uh, Tara Musselman yesterday. She's uh, an intern from PSU on your ballot measure campaign. And it's this is next week's guest lecture for the students or one of them. And she several different times fell into what to me sounded like the campaign stump speech, because that's just the messaging that was kind of, you know, like you guys all have that same stuff. And I recognized it like the third time it happened. I was like, oh, this is your stump speech. This is these are the this is the <laughs> this is the talking points. And it was really good because and it seemed very natural. Like it wasn't as though it was some kind of weird robotic shift. Uh, right. it, it just came out of her naturally as our conversation evolved. And I imagine that that's you know, that's what it sounds like what you're talking about. Yeah, and it is, and I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Tara's great. Oh, she is but great. Yeah, message discipline, like those two words are the most key words to any ballot measure campaign. If that's all anybody takes away from working on a, a ballot measure issue, I need it to be those two things. And is that different? Um, I mean, on candidate campaigns, you don't have to have that same level of message discipline because the messages are that much more complex and multidimensional. You still do. I mean, you would still need to have like, here's our standard position on this and our standard message and you have all of it, but you just have more issues to discuss. And with the ballot measure, there are one or two or three reasons that a, a measure is good or bad. And sometimes you narrow it all the way down to one. Right. Um, and you just have to keep talking about those because those are your winning messages and anything off of it is a bigger distraction. Right. So if you remember back to measure 97, you heard the same messages repeated consistently. Uh, there was lots of good messaging in that campaign, but we needed people to remember one or two things when they got to their ballot. And again, people, people in a candidate campaign 
Oregonians or voters, they vote for people they like. At the end of the day, you can disagree with somebody on quite a bit, but if you think you can trust them and you like them as a person, they're going to have your vote. A ballot measure, you are trying to convince somebody logically that your position is better than theirs. Now, how do you So a tax increase would hurt uh, low-income families. A tax cut is too good for big corporations, right? And you figure out what you need to talk about, and that's what you want people to hear every single time. And how do you figure out what the... Because, you know, you've talked about ballot measures as, as logical and more like a debate, and I could totally see how that is true, but there are a number of different ways that you could message the same position. How do you figure out what the best messaging to win... Uh, ballot measure campaign because I, I remember 97 and I will I will confess that I was on the other side than you were um, but I also will confess <laughs> sorry for your loss no that's that's okay <laughs> I, I I think you know one of the things that I hear from everybody in politics is you have to learn how to lose right and I and congr- right. congratulations for your win and I think that one of the things as it was happening I remember being very impressed this is before I knew you being very impressed with the messaging on the no side how did you decide that that was the right way to approach getting people to be wary of Measure 97 when, in fact, it was, you know, when it started out, the very idea of it pulled pretty well? Absolutely. It pulled well, you know, all the way until the last month, really. Yeah. So it was a long campaign. So I mean, how did you really figure out how to win that one? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to have polling. I mean, you really, you really do science and the research to back up where you're where your position is, uh, right, whether it's the right measure or not, um, and then also how to message it. You need to be able to afford those resources to do it well. Um, And you have to have a cross-section of the type of people you're speaking with. And some messages don't work with every audience. Or I guess a better way to say that is some messages work better with certain audiences than others. Um, And you need to define what those are. And then if you can... You build a strategy around who needs to hear which message, but they're still consistent and you still have, you know, your main message that you come back to. Here's a good example. So in Measure 97, uh, just because that's the most recent one and in, in the largest campaign, um, you know, there are some people that, you know, in southern Oregon, let's say, that came up from California and they had no problem at all with the tax on sales. They had no problem at all with the tax on corporations. They didn't even mind that it might hurt low-income folks. But what they didn't like was that the opponents were saying there would be accountability for where the money would be spent. And once they found out that wasn't the case, they felt like they were lied to. Or they were voters that were saying, I'm fine with tax increases. Like, I've been a lifelong Democrat, but it should go to education and health care. Right? So that population was fine with all the tax piece. So the conversation about tax on sales doesn't work. But the conversation about how the money is basically a blank check to the government, that's what they needed to hear, right? But it takes a lot of time and research to to identify that. Right. If you're lucky, you're working on an issue that the message resonates well with multiple populations and with everybody, um, and you don't have that kind of issue. Right. But in 97, you're right. You had, there, were, there were different arguments against it that you had to tar- figure out where they worked best. And I can totally see that. Um, now that raises for me, you're, you were on the no side there and now you're on the yes side of a, of a ballot measure. I can see that with the, on the no side, you just have to get people to know with one argument for them. What's the difference between running a yes versus a no campaign? Yeses tend to be difficult, more difficult for a couple different reasons. Um, the first being that most folks, uh, I shouldn't say most, I'm sorry, The first being that there is a good percentage of voters that are status quo voters. And so they will automatically vote no because they don't trust change. And that exists across both, you know, we're all party affiliations. It's not really one or the other. And if they don't vote, right, if they say it's too complicated, I'm just not going to vote on this, that by default is a no vote, right, because they didn't proactively vote for a yes. So that's one one challenge to it. You know, and that's the biggest thing you're trying to convince anybody on a yes measure is that something needs to change. And it's a very important balance on whether you're telling somebody that something needs to change because something's bad or something needs to change because you have a great idea. And there's a very distinct line there. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, totally. 
Yeah, it's either vote yes on this because somebody else is doing something wrong or vote yes because we've come up with a, a brand new idea and we think it's great. Um, and those can be distinct uh, distinct differences. Right. It would seem to be easier to uh, get a yes on where you've identified a problem that you're fixing versus here's something great that we want to do. Is that correct? Right. Right. And sometimes people will put a no measure on the ballot or, or they'll they'll put a yes measure on the ballot that actually is a no. So you're saying yes to stop something right. or prevent something from happening. And that's happened in a few recent election cycles and it becomes very, very confusing. Um, I would say logistically being on the yes side, your campaign must exist a lot longer. There are a lot more loops to go through on a yes ballot measure than a no. On the no, you can build a coalition and you can raise money but you don't actually have to activate a campaign team necessarily until the measure qualifies for the ballot. If you are on the yes side, you have to collect signatures, right? You have to file the actual measures. You have to raise money to do that. That can take a significant amount of time. Um, some people work on them for years before they actually submit them to the ballot. The no campaign, you know, you are, when we were doing the no on measure 97 campaign, we'd started building the effort. Uh, you know, as soon as we knew the ballot measure was coming, but we didn't have to actually hit go on the campaign until they qualified in July for the ballot. Right. right? Could, so logistically, it's much more challenging to put something on the ballot than it is to stop it. Differences being geographic or political, right? In, in Portland, most things that get put on in Multnomah County that are a yes measure are going to be very difficult to stop. Uh, statewide, you know, it really depends on the issue, but um, you know, if somebody's putting an issue on a ballot in, in Multnomah County, it's probably reflective of the voters already, like a tax increase or like a school bond or like a homelessness measure. Um, and stopping that usually will require a different type of majority that that's hard to get to. Yeah. I, I mean, I think about my own voting behavior and on local measures, I almost always vote yes. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and I know that that's, I mean, the, I mean, the sort of dominant and they, they, they almost always pass. I can't, I, I think that, uh, on local measures, I can't think of one where I voted yes, where it didn't win. And I, I'm just kind of in the, the standard majority here. Um, so I want to, I want to move to one last thing before we finish the interview today. You've mentioned coalition building a couple times. Um, and it seems like that in addition to messaging, that's an, a very important component in running a ballot measure, especially a yes. Uh, I know that for the ballot measure you're working on right now, that you've built a very diverse coalition. What are some of the challenges in one, building a coalition, and two, holding it together and focusing a diverse coalition on you know a single message? Since you, you identified message discipline as a very important piece of a of a ballot measure campaign, how do, what are the challenges of coalition building and coalition maintaining? Yeah, it's actually like my favorite part of, of running ballot measure campaigns is building that coalition, whether you're, you're pro or against something, I would say the most difficult part um, is it's hard for people to be the first one or two to jump in. Right. It's, it's, they, you have to kind of build it in a spiral at the same exact time. And so you have to kind of get a soft ask and a soft commitment from a number of folks first that are willing to put their neck out. Uh, and say, yeah, we'll, we'll put our name on this or, or we want to help with it. They're going to call somebody else and ask them, what do you think about it? And they're going to call somebody else and ask them, what do you think about it? And hopefully if you're able to do it, you've already had all of those conversations. So by the time that circle happens, everybody's heard good things about it or they've already heard about it. Um, so that's certainly one challenge is just kind of getting it started initially. Of course, you need to have the right measure uh, or the right issue that can can build those types of coalitions. I think certainly it's possible to do on one side of an, an issue or another. Um, I'm very thankful that the coalition on redistricting is is very diverse and broad and probably the only time these organizations would come together. Right. It's a great issue to bring together people that are normally on opposite sides. Right. And I think it's really about, you know, keeping the coalition together is about building relationships and trust with them, just like it is with a, a candidate uh, and making sure that their input is valued. Right. And everybody that's part of a coalition is there because they bring something different to the table and a different perspective, even when that coalition goes to 30,000 people. Right. And individuals, whether there's five people or 30 or, or 30,000. Um 
you know, being able to understand that they can bring something to the table that might be a new idea or understand why they're there in the first place and trying to nurture those relationships. And usually in a ballot measure campaign, you have people on staff and on team that are, are responsible for that, right? They're kind of the direct conduit to coalition members or steering committee members. Um, so there's that you, your campaign staff is kind of like people who are, have a liaison leaning towards particular groups. Um, sure. Well, you build, you know, you build an outreach team, and if you want to reach Farm Bureau members, you need to have somebody in the Farm Bureau reach out to them, right? Um, or if you are within a certain party affiliation and you need party, you know, folks to jump on board, probably the best way is to have somebody on the coalition that that works in that space be that contact. Um, so just knowing and being able to identify which of those relationships can be built and by whom is really important to building a good team. Right, because you don't, you yourself as the campaign manager don't necessarily have all those relationships pre-existing that you would need to hold together. So you can bring in people who can connect in that way. Right, and if you're doing it well, you build a team that does have those, right? right? So, and that's one thing interesting about a manager regardless is that you as the manager can't do everything and you can't know everything and know everybody, but your job is to make sure that all of those things still get done. And so if it's, we need this person to be in the coalition because we absolutely need these voters and they're the best person for it, it's not your job to try to build that relationship at step two. It's to build the relationship at step one and then say, okay, now this is your your segment, right? Um, and I think that's hard for campaign managers. It's still hard for me to learn, just like I was saying, I struggle with delegation. Sometimes that's on these things too, is I look at a list and say, well, I want to contact all of these people. I don't really need to because you've got people around you that already have those relationships. Um, And as a team, whether you're five people or 20 to start, you actually sit down and map that out, right? So how to be successful, who should be on board because they have input, who do we need on board, and then how do we make both of those things happen? Well, I think that's great advice, and it seems like a pretty good place to end this interview. I really want to thank you for your time and your experience and your insight and wisdom. I know I've learned a tremendous amount, and I think that the students will have learned a tremendous amount as well. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Jack. I appreciate it, and I look forward to seeing how the election cycle goes. Yeah, me too.